You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning. If you're new here, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors at Citizens. Welcome. We're so thrilled that you chose to worship with us. If you're watching online, uh, whether it's your first time or you've been doing that for a long time, uh, welcome. We're we're thrilled to have you. Uh, I need to uh, lay a really clear solid theological foundation for where we're going this morning. Last November, I spent a week in the mountains of Wyoming. It's one of my favorite places in all the world. And I went there with um, Carrie and some of our friends. And one of the days, uh, I went on a long hike. It was like a nine, 10 hour hike uh, with uh, a few of my friends. One of them was Pat LaMonica. He's a longtime member here. And another was Taryn Mays, who uh, serves on staff here and is also a close friend. And um, the hike was incredible. It was snowing. It was beautiful. It was super cold, but it was worth it because um, it was, it was uh, just majestic. And uh, Pat, if you know him, uh, is a really gifted conversationalist. Uh, he's very thoughtful. He asks really good questions. And we had a ton of time to, to walk and hike. And so one of the questions that he asked on that hike was, was a question that I've thought a lot about. And here's what it was. He asked, what was a season in your life that marked significant growth for you as a Christian? Like a season that, not, not your conversion necessarily, but after your conversion, a season where maybe you went through something or maybe you learned certain things about God and, and it just changed you. You'd look back and you'd say, uh, since this happened, I, I just haven't quite been the same. And I've thought about that a lot. You know, I, I uh, became a believer uh, as a child and I don't remember becoming a Christian. I don't. Uh, I remember uh, a little bit of being baptized as a kid. Um, I have a vague memory of that because I was baptized by my dad with my older brother. My brother's a year and four days older than me. And so we got baptized together. And what I remember about that was I remember as he was being baptized by my dad, I went under the water and watched to make sure that he kept his eyes closed because I thought at the time that if you opened your eyes, it didn't count. And I don't know where I heard that, um, but it's true. It doesn't count if you open your eyes. Um, and so I don't, I don't remember becoming a Christian. I, I remember moments, though, when I tell my story, it, what I kind of camp out on are those significant times of change. Those, and, and for a lot of people, it's suffering, and that's true f- for me, too. It's like seasons where uh, God led me through something, and I just haven't been the same. But in, oftentimes, it's also you just see truths about God. And, and maybe it's not that you hear them for the first time, but it's the first time that they went through your mind and settled in your heart, and, and you're, just, you're just different because of it. And so, uh, listen, where we're going this morning, we need uh, to, be a, to be on the same theological. It's as important as it ever has been to be able to come from the same theological foundation. And my answer in the snow on that hike, I think, offers that for us. And so here's what I told my friends. When I was 21 years old, something happened. Uh, I learned a beautiful truth about the world, about God, about what he's doing, and I haven't been the same since. And it was through mentors and, and classes and, and conversations and books and all that, but here was that truth. The Bible tells one concise story, beginning to end, and then makes the claim that that's the story that we're all caught up in. It's our story. And one of the ways to tell that story, one of the primary ways to tell that story is that it's the story of the kingdom. And, and, and that is a world that this world is waiting for. 
It's a world of justice and life and peace and salvation. And when the Bible wants to talk about that world that this world's waiting for, it calls it the kingdom of God and claims that Jesus, part of what he did was he came to bring the kingdom of God on earth. That's why Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and this world that we live in now is fractured by sin and it's filled with brokenness. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but there is a world coming that is the cure to this world. And the major shift for me in that season at 21 years old was when I saw in God's word what felt like for the first time verses where the Bible would say that a bit of that world has already begun. What, I'd say it like this, what I would have said is what I would have called heaven and and thought was only future. The Bible calls the kingdom and says it's both future and present. Jesus makes that claim when he starts preaching in Matthew 4 and says the kingdom of God is at hand. He has a conversation with Mary after Lazarus dies, and Mary says, I know I'm going to see my brother in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Part of what you're waiting for is already here. And I think up until that time in my life, my understanding of the Christian story was not wrong. It was just incomplete. It would have been something like sin is bad, Jesus forgives, heaven is great, you can go there when you die, you should obey God because that's how you show that you love him and you're grateful. And none of those things are, none of those things are false They're just incomplete, and they don't come alive until they're rooted in its completed context, and that's the story of the kingdom. And and, and when I heard that, I was just just taken with it. I remember going to lunch with some friends of mine who were not in Bible college and just trying to explain to them what I was learning, and I got a napkin out and and, and a pen, and I started drawing these circles. I was like, this is the present evil age, and then this is the age to come, and, and what Jesus is doing is the future is pouring into the present, and I'm like, isn't that amazing? And they did not care. They're like, we're here for the chips, and that's okay. But I, I, I just haven't, I just have been changed by that truth. Uh, and I remember a moment, a day, I was sitting in class, and a professor was talking about the kingdom, how it's already and not yet. And then he just asked this question that I think about all the time. What will you do today to give the present a picture of the future? How will the kingdom that both is and is to come How will it be displayed in your life? What will you do today to give the present a picture of the future? And I walked out of class and onto the streets of Dallas, and that question was just burning in my head. And I was thinking, okay, where do I see the the absence of God? Where do I see brokenness and suffering? Where, Where are there around me right now the kinds of things that won't be around when Jesus returns? And what, in this moment, in this moment, what, if anything, can I, by God's grace, do about that? And so I walked to a 7-Eleven. And there was a man asking for money in the parking lot. And I thought, you know what? Homelessness and poverty, they won't be a part of God's future. They won't be around when Jesus returns. And so I asked him if I could pray with him, and I told him about Jesus, and I gave him all the cash I had, which was $3, which probably didn't help my gospel pitch much, but... (laughs) But I prayed with him, and, and look, I don't, I don't share that because I think that that's some sort of stellar example of, of how to care for people in that situation. That's not my point. My point is this. These truths changed me. I, I have never quite been the same after encountering the truth that the Bible is one story. We're caught up in that story. That story has a wonderful ending, and we have been invited now to live now in a way that points to the future, that brings a bit of heaven here, the kingdom here. And you see it all over Scripture. Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6, 1 Thessalonians is largely about living for the day of Jesus' return. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The new has come. It has begun in you, in your salvation, among us, and it's changed me. And so my best days as a pastor, as a husband, 
as a Christian, as a human, my best days are days when I'm asking, what will I do today to give the present a picture of the future? And if you've been here for any length of time, hopefully what we've learned together by now, what's been communicated by now is as far as our church goes, this is just stake in the ground for me. This is like plant the flag here. The name of our church is Citizens Church, and that's an unusual name. Yes, it's also the name of a bank. It's the name of a church because we are. I I want as many opportunities as God gives me, however long God gives me, to be able to say, you, Christian, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God that both is and is to come. I've run out of ways to illustrate this, and so I'm just recycling old illustrations at this point. We've talked about it as the changing of the seasons. My favorite way to talk about it is... Um, to say that the, the church is to the kingdom what the movie trailer is to the movie. My girls went and saw Sing 2 in theaters without me, which was great because for a few days that meant they stopped singing We Don't Talk About Bruno, and then they, they went back to it, and it's, it's nonstop now. Um, but, but now, as of a few days ago, you can rent Sing 2, and they were like, Dad, can we rent it? And I was like, yeah. And then I pulled it up. It's $25 to rent <laughs> And it's like, at some point, movies were like 99 cents to rent. And so I said, oh, no, 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 we'll just wait until it's free. Like, let's just wait six months, it'll be free somewhere. And they said, no, 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 Dad, it's worth it. (laughs) And they made me sit, and here's how they made their case. They made me sit and watch every single trailer for Sing 2 that they could find in hopes that the trailer, something about it would make me interested in the movie, and it would make the cost of the movie worth it. The church is to the kingdom what the movie trailer is to the movie. It gives a taste in the present of what's coming. It gives a little bit of the the substance of what is to come in a way that, that it invites the present to long for the future. It invites those in the present to be willing to pay the cost of what it means to be a part of the kingdom, to be eager for its arrival. If I could just put all of that into a question, it's this. What will I do today to give the present a picture of that glorious future? And there are a lot of answers to that. There's a, there's a character answer to that. There's a, uh, a marriage answer to that. There's a relationship answer to that. This morning, I want to offer two really broad answers in keeping with a conversation that we've had around here for years. For the last several years, every January, we've taken most of the month to talk about a few things that are hard to talk about, that are controversial to talk about, but they're important to talk about because it's important that Christians care. So to give you an example, if you're new, that's been conversations about caring for refugees and caring for the vulnerable and opposing abortion and contending for the unborn and opposing racism and contending for diversity and unity in the church. Those are all staple January topics for us. And this year, we are bringing those conversations that used to happen on multiple Sundays and having them all on one Sunday. And here's why. Because right now, some of those topics often fall or are forced on different political or social sides, and I just need us to see that they have the same theological home the same theological home. It's as important now as it's ever been for this conversation to be tied to the theological foundation of the kingdom. It's not first a political conversation. It's not even first a cultural conversation. It's a kingdom conversation. And it's time to take back what are deeply Christian concerns. And to be honest, just to try to untangle that from the crazy. Like if I could put it bluntly, because we talk about life issues and abortion, some may leave today and think, man, that guy's like a far right-wing conservative. 
Because we talk about issues of race today, some might leave and think, man, that guy is a far-left liberal. And I'm neither. I'm a Christian and a Cowboys fan, and that's about it, right? That's, that's it's a big day for us. Should have worn blue. I wore, someone was like, hey, you wore Niners colors today. And I'm like, dang it. Um, but the climate right now around these controversial issues uh, has created these false polarities where you can't talk about these things without pledging allegiance to one side over the other. And I just refuse. I refuse. That's not true. Like, if I can be candid, I, I have preached these sermons for four years now. And uh, we, we've talked about this for longer than that as a church when Matt was preaching. But um, something has happened just in my experience over those four years preaching these sermons. People's responses have changed. People who amened the first time they were preached were angered the third time. And it's not the sermon that changed. The sermon's the same every single year. It's because we have been so conditioned, especially in the last 18 months, we've been so conditioned to hear these conversations through a political lens and not a kingdom one. And, and, and that applies. I need you to know this so that you're not assuming what I'm not saying. I have experienced that on all sides, on all sides. And, and it's because we don't listen to sermons, really. We listen for sound bites and sentences to judge and assumptions to make. And so maybe this is naive, but if I can fight for anything this morning, it would be to untangle this from some of the mess and remind us of this. The thing we'll be tethered to for the, for the next 30 minutes. What leads a Christian into these spaces is not what political identity do I claim or what social cause do I find my value in. What leads us into these spaces are kingdom convictions and kingdom dreams, the citizens of the kingdom who care deeply to answer this question, what am I going to do today to give the present a picture of the future? And that question has to matter. It has to matter for every single person who's received the blood of Jesus and surrendered their lives to him as king. And so really all this morning is, is about offering how our church has answered that question in two broad ways with, with a handful of implications. There are, there are a myriad of ways we've answered that question. I'm just talking about two this morning. Here's the first answer. The way that we give the present a picture of the future is to fight for an ethnically diverse, unified church in a divided world. To fight for an ethnically diverse, unified church in a divided world. Here's a baseline biblical conviction. You cannot read the Bible without coming out of that time with this conviction. Racism, prejudice, any sort of mistreatment of another human based on color or class is an offense to a holy God. It's an offense to a holy God. Because God made humans in his image, just like Ina read for us just a few moments ago in Genesis. And, and then in Romans, Paul will talk about God as a God who does not show partiality, meaning he is not partial to some humans over others based on any outward characteristic. One of the first mentions of different ethnicities in the Bible is Genesis 12, where God promises that through Abraham, all of, the, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's heart has always been towards all kinds of people. The next major storyline in the Bible is in Exodus, and what you see there is God rescuing his people from ethnic oppression. They were slaves in Egypt simply because they weren't Egyptians. And it's an offense to God. And so what he does is he judges the captors and he sets free the captive. Then in Luke 10, probably the passage around this issue that we've spent the most time walking through as a church, Jesus is answering one of the most important questions you could ask. A Jewish lawyer comes to Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And who do I not have to love? 
And Jesus responds by telling the famous story about a man in need who was beaten and stripped and left half dead on the side of the road, who was not helped by the religious elite of the day. But then a Samaritan comes by and he's helped by this man who was the religious ethnic, social enemy of the Jewish people in Jesus's day. And we've covered this several times here. Jesus's point in that story, when asked the question, who do I have to love? The answer is humans, humans, image bearers of God. Well, what about the ones who are different from me? Especially those, especially those. He, he, in that parable, he ties the quality of our love to our ability to love those not like us. He ties the quality of our love, how our love is distinct from the way everyone else loves everyone else, is tied to our ability to love those who are not like us. So look, from that foundation, every Christian can look at instances of racial violence, oppression, and every Christian can look at instances of of passive prejudice and say, that's a sin that does not belong in God's world. My son is studying World War II in school. He got to the point where they learned about the Holocaust, and he just couldn't, his 10-year-old mind just couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that that happened. It's evil. It has no place in God's world. The fact that this country, as much as I love her, and I do love her, but it is unignorable history that much of this country was built on the backs of slaves. Men and women who bear the image of God, treated like property, and every Christian should unflinchingly be able to say, that broke God's heart. It's wrong, and it has no place in God's world. Tomorrow, we'll celebrate the life of Martin Luther King Jr., and every year, I'm reminded around this time, remembering his life, his cause, the work he did, I'm reminded that it was not that long ago. For some of you in your lifetime, that people of color were disallowed from worshiping in certain churches, where you had a guy that looks a lot like me standing in the church of Jesus, defending the belief that it's best for whites and blacks to not worship together. We can worship together when we get to heaven because we have the same Savior, but we can't worship together on earth because we don't have the same skin. There's no place for that in God's world. You'll get plenty more chances to amen, but you missed one of them just then. There's no place. (laughs) There's no place for that in God's world. That won't belong to the world that is to come, right? There's especially no place for that in the church of Jesus. Those are all examples of the past. Here's a recent one. In 2020, the FBI reported a spike in hate crimes. It was the most in over a decade. And almost two-thirds of those were ethnicity-based. And there was a particular increase in 2020 in hate crimes against Asian Americans. In fact, as a result of all that, one in four Asian Americans said that they were scared to leave their home and be in public. And it's easy to feel like that's a distant statistic, but when I read that just a few days ago, I immediately thought of the pastors at this church who ministered to Asian American members of this church who experienced that hate and who shared that fear. And what they're saying is, I am afraid for my safety and I'm afraid for my children because of what I look like. There's no place for that in God's world. There's a day where that will be done forever. Okay, but that... That's just baseline. (laughs) Calling the evil of racism evil, calling the evil of prejudice evil, grieving over what grieves God, that's just baseline. For the Christian, it does not stop at condemning what's wrong. I don't even think it stops at searching our own heart for prejudice and partiality. It doesn't stop by us saying, okay, I'm not a racist, right? It goes beyond that. The point of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is it goes beyond that to the pursuit of people, the active pursuit of people who are not like us in love. 
What can I do today to give the present a picture of the future? The answer is by loving and pursuing those who are not like me, uh, remembering that where this all ends is an incredibly diverse worship service that never stops. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God in all different languages, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the future. That's the, the kingdom. Every nation and every tribe and every tongue gathered together worshiping Jesus, all different colors all different classes, all different cultures, not just getting along, but loving one another because of a shared Savior and a shared story. And all, in all different kinds of tongues and all different kinds of languages will stand and will sing this, I was lost and he found me. I was dead and he raised me to life. At times I was faithless. He's always faithful. Jesus, we love you. And that story does not belong to only one culture or one ethnicity or one color. That story belongs to everyone who was met right where they were and rescued by Jesus. And, and one day we'll gather together, united by that. That future is what's coming. That's part of the kingdom that God is bringing. Amen. And Throughout Christian history, one of the most powerful displays of the kingdom has been when people who have nothing in common but Jesus love one another. I started reading a book a few months ago. I heard about it from another pastor. It's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's written by a historian, and he's basically just answering the question from history. How did Christianity go from being a marginalized, persecuted minority to the religion of the Roman Empire in just a few hundred years. I mean, that's crazy revival. That's crazy kind of growth. And so how, from a historical perspective, did that happen? Did they go from the first and second century marginalized, persecuted minority to the fourth century religion of the empire? And one of the answers he gives um, is he will point to instances where Christians did something, lived in such a way that was so unexpected that so clashed with the common values of the day that it jarred unbelievers, it jarred pagans to the point where their only option was to hate Christians or become one, to hate them or become them. And one of those actions that he talks about in the book was when Christians loved other Christians in a way that defied social barriers and ethnic barriers. There's a stunning example I want to share with you. On May 7th, the year is 203 in Carthage, which is far North Africa. There were gladiator games on that day in Carthage in honor of the empire of the emperor. And the way it worked is that people would come and gather in the amphitheater for the game. And part of that was watching gladiators fight one another. Uh, but also part of that, the main event was watching prisoners who were basically tortured for sport. And they would let animals loose in the arena to attack them. And then if they didn't die, the, the climactic moment of the games was one of the gladiators would come and would execute them. And on May 7th, 203, the group of prisoners that were featured in the game were a group of Christians who had been arrested because it was illegal to be a Christian. And one was a 21-year-old woman named Perpetua. You can read about her story. We know about this day largely because she kept a journal of everything that happened, and it's been preserved. And Perpetua and several other Christians had been imprisoned for their faith, and they were going to be murdered at the games. And the way it worked is they would let the animals go first and do their work on the prisoners. And then if they didn't die that way, 
then they would gather them all together in the middle and then they would be executed. And so uh, what happened to Perpetua and one of her friends is they're attacked by a bull and badly injured. What happened to another Christian man that was there is he was attacked by a leopard and badly injured. And so then they're all injured and then came the time for them to come together for execution, those who are still alive. And usually what would happen at this point is the prisoners would turn on one another. What everyone expected from past games is when the prisoners come together for execution, this is when they turn on one another to try and defend themselves in hopes that they would preserve their life. And usually how that worked is prisoners of different social classes would turn against other prisoners and people of different ethnicities would turn against one another. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to stay alive just a little longer. They would even kill other prisoners to try to preserve their own life. But on that day, something different happened. When it was a group of Christians whose lives were on the line, they did something that stunned the arena. They gathered in the middle, awaiting execution, and instead of fighting one another, they each exchanged a kiss, which is remembered in history as the kiss of peace. Here's how the book describes it. These disparate people, women and men, slave and free, poor and advantaged, kissed each other so that they might bring their martyrdom to completion with the kiss of peace. Exhausted and in pain though they were, the prisoners did, listen to this, they did reflexively, virtually on autopilot, what they had been habituated to do in their service of worship. Remember that. They exchanged the kiss of peace, embodying a love that transcended social barriers. Can you imagine? Amphitheater full of people watching as these imprisoned for their faith, already bloodied, already beaten, and what they've come to expect is this is the moment where they turn on each other. This is the moment where they attack each other. The free attack the slaves, the men, the women, the rich, the poor, all to try to stay alive. This is when the humans act like animals. And instead, what they saw was a love for one another in the face of death that transcended those barriers. And they come together and exchange a kiss, and they die together as one people. Instead of it being the moment the humans acted like animals, it was the moment the humans acted like Christians and gave the world a picture of the future, gave in the present a picture of the kingdom. And there's a line I read that I had to read a few times to understand when he says what they did is what they had been habituated to do in their worship services. What he means is they all are part of the same church. They'd worship together on a Sunday. They'd gather together in homes. And part of what would happen when they'd gather together in worship is a typical Christian greeting in that culture, in that, situ- in that, in that culture was to exchange a kiss called the kiss of peace. And it signified unity and love together in Jesus. And that's what they did in the arena. That's what came out of them in that moment. Here's the point. They were able to love each other in death because they had already learned to love each other in life. They had already learned to love each other sitting across a table so they could love each other when they're facing death together, despite their differences. And when given the opportunity to put that love and unity on display, it did not fail. And you know what it did? It changed the world. Literally, one of their prison guards watching that in that moment gave his life to Jesus, became a Christian after seeing that. What an opportunity we have to do the same. We may never be asked to love each other in death, But we have already been asked to love each other in life with a love that transcends class and transcends color and transcends any difference. And so this has been slow for us. I'll admit that this has been slow for us as a church. But one of my hopes and our hopes here is to have growing diversity at our church. Gosh, that that someone would walk in our doors and would say, wait, 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 all these people call this place home. All these people belong together. Well, he didn't look like her and she didn't look like him. 
And, and their stories are completely different, and their makeups are completely different. And then that curiosity would lead them to asking a question, what's going on here? And the answer is, oh, one day every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation are united together in a worship service like this, united around shared love for Jesus, and we just get to be a small picture of that. We just get to put that on display in a small way. And I know that means taking steps practically. That's why we are, are trying to grow more diverse on staff and more diverse in our elder room and in our leadership. I think that what it, what it has to mean as well is a shared culture among us together where we say because of the kingdom and because of the king, I will intentionally love and pursue those who are not like me. I will put in the work to learn to love one another in life. That maybe one day I would be counted so worthy to love one another in death. And the opportunity is there's a future coming. It's breaking into the present, and we can give the present a picture of that future by loving, by growing more diverse because of a shared love for Jesus and an active pursuit of those who are not like us. Here's the second answer. How are we giving the present that picture of the future? Number two is to contend for life, all of life, but especially for the life of the vulnerable. Here's a baseline conviction. You can't read the Bible from cover to cover without coming out with this conviction. Every single life matters. Like we've already said, everyone's made in the image of God, and that means before we do anything or prove anything or become anyone, our life matters. You matter. Your life matters. It's sacred. It has dignity. And it's not because of anything you've done or haven't done. It's simply because you're a human. My wife and my daughter, they get in an argument often about our dog. And here's how the argument goes. Our daughter thinks that my wife, Carrie, should refer to our dog as her son. <laughs> and Carrie disagrees with that pretty strongly, actually. Uh, dogs are great. Dogs are a gift. We love our dog. But we have a son, and he turns out he's really different from our dog, right? Uh, and it's been a teaching opportunity for Addie because uh, we were able to tell her about how humans and only humans are made in the image of God, and they're different. And her response to that has been surprising. Her response has been, well, I... I like to think that God made humans and dogs in his image. And uh, that's, that's her truth. Um, and it's heresy. Um, but <laughs> because humans and only humans are made in God's image. There's nothing like us on earth. Nothing like us. There's nothing like you on earth among all of creation. And you find that truth on the first page of the Bible, that people matter. But then not just that, friends. In the Bible, what you see is there is a particular group of people that God defends. There is a particular image bearer that matters to him. But not just that, there's a particular image bearer that it matters to God, that they matter to God's people. You know who it is? The vulnerable. The one who can't defend themselves. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. 17 makes all of these wonderful claims about God. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. What's true about him? He's not partial. He takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 146.7, God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Psalm 68.5, father to the fatherless, Protector of widows is God in his holy dwelling. In Matthew 25, Jesus separates the faithful from the unfaithful based on how they responded to the vulnerable. And to the faithful, he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty 
And you, I was incarcerated, and you came and you visited me. And as much as you've done so to the least of these, you've done so to me. And so what we know is we know that the kingdom is coming. Revelation 21, no more death, no more pain. There are the kinds of things coming where there are no widows, there are no orphans, there are no people who are displaced. And we know, on top of that, that God has a particular love for and care for the image bearers who are vulnerable. And so what are we doing as a church to be a picture of that future? There's a lot of ways to answer that question. Maybe the best way this morning to answer it is by telling you who is in our foyer this morning and why they're here. One of the people that we've partnered with is an organization called International Justice Mission, IJM. There are more people in slavery in the world today than at any point in world history. And that slavery takes on different forms. It's labor. Some of it I can't talk about because there's kids in the room. IJM, what you need to know about IJM is IJM is leading the fight by every significant metric, leading the fight to set captives free to bring both restorative and retributive justice to people who have been victims of unspeakable crimes. They have 24 offices in 14 different countries. One of those offices is in Guatemala, and Citizens has partnered with that. The major problem in Guatemala is sexual violence against women and children, and there are few trying to prevent it, and even fewer trying to prosecute it after it happens. In 2021, what we were a part of, in 2021, 1,268 victims were rescued in Guatemala. 1,153 perpetrators were restrained. And, and I wish, I wish I could share just one of those stories, but out of respect and sensitivity to the room, I just encourage you, would you go onto IJM's website at some point today and just read through the work that they're doing and the actual people that are associated with those statistics. Why do we care? Why have we partnered? Because every woman and child in Guatemala is made in the image of God. And there is a day coming when God's image bearers are no longer enslaved, violated, and victimized. And today, we just want to do our part to support, to pray, and to maybe bring a bit of that future into the present. Also in the foyer, we have refugee relief effort. You'll see Chad, who is our minister of mobilization. He's standing out there this morning. This is a ministry of Citizens Church. It's homegrown. What happened was, as the Taliban took over Afghanistan, thousands of people were fleeing and looking for a new home. And our church raised our hand and said, we want to help. We want to help. Over 100 of you raised your hand, actually, and said, we want to help, however we can. And as of today, we've helped three families. And, and many of you have been a part of that through prayer, through giving, through helping set up apartments. I'll tell you about one family. We helped one family over Christmas. They got settled into a home. They have four young boys, ages 9, 8, 5, and 10 months. That's a handful. And in the process of coming here, they discovered that their two youngest boys have health problems and they need bone marrow transplants. So their time here in the States has been filled with doctor's visits, and that's about it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how overwhelming that would be to flee your country to a place that is not your home, only to find out that your boys are sick? And, and, and the dad can't get a job because he's the English speaker in the family, and so he has to be at all the appointments. And then on top of that, they discovered that they have mice in their apartment that have been eating their food. And I can't imagine how defeating it must be that, that on top of all the suffering in their life, they open up the cupboard one day and they realize that their, their, half their food is gone. You know what they did when they realized that? They saw that that had happened and they picked up the phone and they called Garrett and Amanda, who are members here. And Garrett went over and together they got in the car and they went to the store and they bought these plastic bins to help protect their food. And it's a small act of help. It's a small act of compassion. There's still a lot of need, but here's what's beautiful, friends. Last August, this family is fleeing war, and last month, 
in a moment of need. They knew when they were in need, they could call and help would come, and it came from this church. Praise God. Here's why we're doing that. Because every single man, woman, and child who fled their country is made in the image of God. And there's a day coming when image bearers no longer have to flee war. Psalm 10 says, it speaks of a day when God hears the cry of the afflicted and brings justice so that evil bring terror no more on the earth. And today, there's opportunity. We can meet simple needs and show simple love and hopefully enter into other people's pain and mess to bring a bit of the future here in the present. Also in the foyer are two organizations that help pregnant women, especially those who are considering abortion. One is called Real Options. It's a local organization. The other is called Human Coalition. It's global. Now, would you please keep, keep listening? I know abortion is incredibly controversial thing to talk about. I, I'm not assuming that everyone in the room agrees with everything I'm about to say. I'm not assuming that. I'm actually assuming the opposite. Uh, in fact, it pains me. It, it pains me to know that, uh, that some of you gave church a try and because of what I'm about to say against abortion, no matter what I say, some of you will leave today thinking Christians are who I thought they were. They hate people, they hate women, and it's not true. But considering the climate and considering the rhetoric that fills this conversation, I understand why some of you might feel that way. Here's our heart, if you could hear me out. Every day in this country, over 2,000 babies are aborted. And I call them babies because we believe that life starts at conception. The science tells us that there are clear signs of life that begin around, mostly before, when most abortions happen. Heartbeat, fingerprint, organs working. And, and that science just substantiates what we find in the Bible where the Bible speaks about what's happening in the womb as an act of God, as ordained by God. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, you knit me together, where? In my mother's womb. There are several instances when the Bible will talk about God's presence being with a child in the womb. That's true about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. God is already acting in the life of a child in utero. So what do we do with all that? Well, it's a life. It's a human made in God's image, filled with dignity, worth protecting. And that's the starting place. It's a life. It's a human. And so there are a lot of really good questions that come up in the conversation, and, and I'll try to honor those in some ways. Important concerns that are raised about care for women and help for women who are pregnant unexpectedly or, or help for women who are pregnant in really sad circumstances. Those are great questions. But the starting place for answering those questions has to be destroying life is not the way forward. Inflicting pain on another human, and we know babies in the womb feel the pain of abortion. That can't be the answer. That can't be the answer. And, and, and maybe you don't know what to think and you're not sure what to do with this. I say this every year. Maybe at least we could just be confused together about some things. Like one of the people, one of the things I find so confusing about this is one of the people groups that our society regularly celebrates are boys and girls, men and women even, who have Down syndrome. They're celebrated in commercials and maybe you've seen them. A few years ago, Nordstrom featured as the front of their catalog a model, a child model is a girl with Down syndrome. Or the video that maybe you've probably seen that goes viral whenever the football team puts the team member with Down syndrome in the game and everyone runs with him and escorts him into the end zone and then celebrates like he won the Super Bowl. What's being said in all that is, yes, there's something wrong. Yes, it's part of the brokenness of the world. But that life is worth honoring and worth celebrating. And, and she deserves to be a model. And he deserves to score a touchdown. 
And yet the overwhelming majority, a few years ago it was over 90%, the overwhelming majority of pregnancies with a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome end in abortion. It's a population that is on the verge of extinction. And I don't know that decision. I've never been in that place. But I still find myself so confused by a society that looks and says they deserve to be celebrated in the commercial and they deserve to be honored on the football field, but they don't deserve to be protected in the womb. It's confusing. It's heartbreaking. And that's just, that's just one of a host of contradictions. Here's why we care as a church. Why we care is because every child from conception is made in the image of God. They deserve a chance. They deserve a chance. And there's coming a day when the most vulnerable are not threatened. That day's coming. There's coming a day where the most vulnerable among us are not. They don't have their life at risk, and we want to contend for the vulnerable in a way that displays that future, have a voice for those who can't speak for themselves. And also, here's why we care. And this is as important as what I just said. We also care because real people, real women, made in the image of God, are looking for help, scared and largely don't know what to do. A human coalition told me this, that they gave me this statistic, 76% of women they care for say that they would choose life and they prefer to parent if their life circumstances were just a little better. Do you hear that? That 76% of those who, who go in, and if they're going in, it's because they're really confused about what to do, and they're not sure, and they say, I would choose life. I prefer to parent this child if my circumstances were just a little bit better, and, and, and then they describe what better means, and it's financial help. It's a mentor. It's if, if I had someone to help me write a resume or find an apartment. If I had someone who could answer my questions about pregnancy, if I had someone who would take me to coffee, if there was just somebody who I knew would throw me a baby shower. Do you hear that? It's, I would choose life if someone would just choose me. I would choose life if someone would just help me. And if that's the need, who should be those people, church? Who should be the ones that, that, that say, yeah, I'll be there. I'll choose you. I'll stand with you. The church of Jesus. Us. The people who know of a future that's coming where women don't walk into clinics in impossible circumstances. And I need you to know this. You, so many of you, it, it would be, uh, it would almost be disrespectful. So many of you are modeling this so well. And I think that's important to say because I know there are people, even Christians, who are not pro-life, they're just pro-unborn. Or even they're not pro-life, they're just for anti-abortion legislation, but they're not holistically pro-life, womb to tomb, whole life. They don't care about moms, they don't care about people. And I, I know they exist and that is a shame but I personally know so few of them. The majority I know that, that, that call this place home care about all people. It's you. It's this church. So it's one of our members who volunteers with Human Coalition, and she collects money and gifts. She's going to give you an opportunity to do that if you go and talk to her to put into gift bags. And those gift bags, every single woman that comes into the clinic gets one of those gift bags, and they're just filled with small gifts and small ways to communicate, we love you and you matter, and if you're looking for someone who will see you and walk with you, we're here. Uh, it's why I'm so proud of our families here who foster and adopt. 
that community at Citizens is growing and growing, and, and you know way more than I do about how complex this is, how broken the system is. You know way more than I do how much sacrifice is required, but what you've done is you've entered into all that mess. You've opened your home to precious children made in God's image, and many of you have not even stopped there, but you've extended your love to biological moms and dads in ways that are just beautiful and stunning and difficult, and it's because... You honor that loving the vulnerable is so much more than being against abortion. Church, that we would, in all of these, that we would take seriously the invitation to display the kingdom by loving the group of people that God, our our holy God's heart is so tender towards. I need to say something, and then we'll pray. Every year, um, I have this conversation with myself and with some of our elders. Should we keep talking about this from stage? I ask that about all that we've said, but specifically, should we keep addressing abortion like this? And that question is not, should we change our views? Those are settled because of Scripture. But it's the best, is it, the question is, is this the best format for such a sensitive conversation? And I take that so seriously. I feel it now. And the answer is yes. And it will continue to be yes and it's not because we want to win some sort of culture war or anything like that. Can I tell you one of the main reasons why the answer is yes? Because even though I know that some will leave maybe and never come back, and that breaks my heart, it does. I also know that in a room this size, or the many who will listen later, there is someone for whom abortion is part of your story, and you've never talked about it, and there's crippling shame around it, and maybe you felt judged and condemned in so many other circumstances, or you think that it's the only thing God thinks about when he thinks about you, and talking about it like this might be my only chance to tell you something. Sister, there is freedom and forgiveness for you. And I don't know the circumstance. I'm sure you were scared. I don't know what help you did or didn't have, but I know Jesus. And I know of a time when a woman was brought to him and everyone wanted to throw stones and Jesus lifted her face and looked in her eyes and said, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And I don't know what you carry or what you, what you think about you, but I know that because of the grace and mercy of Jesus, this is true. You are not your worst moment. You're not. He loves you. He's made a way for you to find help and healing. There's not a single sin that the cross can't cover because the most beautiful part of the kingdom that already is, the most beautiful part that's here is the saving, forgiving love of Jesus for any and all who come to him. And so this morning, it's worth the risk. And every year, it's worth the risk to be able to tell you, no matter what choices you've made or what shame you carry, Jesus chose to love you. And this morning invites you into freedom, invites you to have not just your face lifted, but guilt lifted off of your life. Would you respond by praying with me, church? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Much has been said. Much to tie together. Oh God, I, I, I pray that we would take seriously the invitation to offer in the present a picture of the future. There's, there is no work more worthy of our life. And I pray, God, that we would stand as a marginalized people, even 
and enter into these conversations, not with the answers the culture gives us or the politicians give us, but the answer that we find in your word, that it is our identity as citizens of heaven that propel us and send us into places of need. Oh, that, that one of my brothers or sisters would respond, would hear, what am I going to do today to give the present a picture of the future, would hear that and would say, I am going to actively pursue those who don't look like me, and I'm going to listen to their pain, and I'm going to extend empathy. But most of all, I'm, I'm going to fight to find unity around shared love for Jesus. Lord, would you, we've prayed this, Lord, would you fill this building, God? Would you fill beyond this building, would you just fill our congregation with people who uh, have a unity of heart and a beautiful diversity that would reflect, even compete with the worship service of heaven. Oh, that, that a man would leave today and would say, God, I, I'm going to answer the question, and, and, and maybe I find myself in a car with a man who has been displaced from his home, and I'm going to take him to go buy groceries. I'm going to help how I can. Lord, that you would, that you would stir in the heart of, of one of my sisters here, God, that that she would say, I'm, I don't know where they are. I'm going to do whatever it takes to find one of the 76%, and I'm going to be the one, I'm going to be the one that hosts a baby shower. And God, that you would, and, and, that you, God, for the man, for the woman, where abortion is part of their story, God, where they, they would say, I had one, or I paid for one, or I encouraged one, God, would you just in your grace and in your kindness, that kingdom mercy would just flood their life and flood their heart, that they would have the courage, God, to bring that to you and maybe even to others to find hope and healing. We love you. We love you. Most of all, God, would you protect us from the lie that not responding is an option. We all have a part to play. We all have obedience to offer. 